Welcome to Creative Dialogues. Creative Dialogues is focused on the arts, exploring collaboration and upskilling and community building within and across art forms. My name is Tom Hogan, and this episode is Writing for Work. This panel, we're talking about writing, whether that be for the page, the stage, or otherwise, mostly in light of the closures of some independent publishers and how literature is an art form that's commonly left out of funding announcements. For instance, in the government's art stimulus package to help the arts survive COVID, the words literature or books or writing didn't even appear in the announcements, focusing mostly on television, live performance, and the major companies. Probably because of all this, the writers and editors and publishers I know are really building to a tight-knit community, supporting each other and being advocates for change. So we got them all in a Zoom call to see what they had to say. So we have Jessie Too, a journalist and poet who just released her debut novel, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. Hi, uh, hi Jessie. Nice to meet you, Jessie. I'm Tom. Hi, Tom. How's it going? We have Curly Saunders, who's a poet, children's author and teacher. She's currently working on her first role as a playwright and her next book, Bindi is a junior fiction verse novel due out in October. Hello, Curly. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, you're great. Cool. Yeah, we can hear you. There's Emily Stewart, freelance literary editor and poet, and she's currently completing her doctorate in creative writing at Western Sydney University. And I believe Emily's joining us right now. Hi. Hello, Emily Stewart. Yeah. Yes. Hello. Hello, Emily. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hi, hi, hi. Hey, Curly. Hey, Jesse. We can all rely on each other's um, genuine social skills. So, Emily, (laughs) this is Curly. Emily, this is Jessie. Wait, I know these guys. (laughs) (laughs) And also Alice Grundy, associate publisher at Brio Books, co-founder of Seizure and PhD candidate in literature at ANU. Um, Hello, Alice. Maybe not. Uh, Just to paint the picture here, it took a few minutes to get the audio working, so we spent the first few minutes watching her and discussing her environment. She looks Um, like she's in um, a cabin somewhere. I know, it's very impressive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, or like in a sauna or something. (laughs) Just the the timber at the back. Yeah, if she's in in Finland right now. uh, Yeah, I wonder if she can hear us. Looks like she can't. (laughs) I can hear. Hey! Hello. Hello, Alice. Hello. Yeah, um, I'm on Ngunnawal country, um, having lived in Sydney for and um, Gadigal country for about 15 years. We always joked that we would come and stay with my in-laws if the apocalypse came. And because um, they live on a hill near Queanbeyan with kangaroos and cockatoos and space. Um, so my partner and I and um, our three-year-old came here, um, which is pretty nice. I mean, that's why it looks like a log cabin because, um, I don't know. Because it is. Um, it basically is, yeah. <laughs> made this at some point out of wood. <laughs> I like these chats. I like how pretty much everyone I've met across all art forms in this series have all been thoughtful and excited to talk. And the feeling I've been getting more and more is that everyone likes to discuss the industry or their relationship to it in a conversational way. And it hasn't felt forced. Maybe that's because there's a lot to discuss and there's a lot to change. Or over the last few months, we've all been processing what we want next and it doesn't feel like there's any rivalry. And also, we're getting better at how to take stock of what we've got. As a really good example of this, 
I turn to Curly, who, as you'll hear, is just awesome. Um, before I start, Nia Curly Saunders acknowledge Mirani Gananugang Barawal Madung Buringilang Yangu, Digirigura Nini Ganayuan Ganangara Birapai Gadigal Buringilang Kurayuangdui. So I'm on Darawal lands um, and I acknowledge Darawal country um, and all of the clan groups who call this area home. I'd also like to pay my respects to my own ancestors who ground me in my dreaming. Yeah, so I was working for Red Room Poetry is an incredible nonprofit organization that aims to make poetry meaningful. And I was leading the Poetry in First Languages project, uh, which aims to celebrate, share and preserve First Nations languages. So uh, we were out on country connecting elders and custodians with students to create and publish poetry. And then we were putting those online and on bus backs, hiccups, trains and ferries to be able to welcome people into the world of language teaching and learning in culturally safe ways. Um, and all of it provided yeah in paid paid employment opportunities for for mob so it was an incredible project to create and i'm so thankful to have uh, lindsay urquhart and ethan bell taking over the project because i've since left red room and uh i'm working on uh playwriting with um support of playwriting australia and also a um poetic arts exhibition project with um create with us osco so yeah a bit of kind of everything but yeah the pro the workshops were put on hold because we weren't able to go out onto country mm. and um yeah it, it's meant that we've been focusing mainly on publication outcomes uh based on last year's project so some of the poems from the darawal program um, will be published onto Signs with Transport New South Wales and um, some of the poems from the Gumia Darawal, so the Shellhaven project, will be used by a composer who's turning them into songs um, around the Shellhaven to continue that language journey. So well, That's yeah. awesome. That's, yeah. That, first of all, you sound um, horrifically pro uh, prolific. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> I know, compared to... I was just it's looking at like what I've achieved over the past like three months. I'm just like, wow, you just really just shoved me to shame there, girlie. That was awesome. No, no, no I'm a, yeah, just, just to clarify, I'm a baby playwright. Um, most <laughs> of the time I, yeah, I, I, I've, I've fallen into writing constantly in this, uh, you know, putting my name out there and just kind of hoping that, yeah, I leap and whatever, something will catch me. And thankfully every time it has. So um, yeah, I, I put it down to the ancestors doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, not to mention you've got like, I think it, like even looking up, you had like two or three books or books that were due this year that are to be yeah, yeah. So well. that from that project, um, poetry in first languages, we uh, amassed a, an anthology, and it sort of brought together multiple Red Room poetry projects into mm. Gulaan. Um, so that's an anthology celebrating thirty-seven First Nations works. Um, and, and so that's published through Red Room, is that right? Uh, through Magabala Books, yeah, in partnership with Red Room Poetry. Sweet. And um, Bindi, my verse novel comes out in October this year, so that's exciting. And, uh, yeah, a few other anthology pieces um, with UQP, uh, Firefront, and um, Penguin, Animals Make Us Human, have all come out this year. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. It sounds like you've really kept your discipline up as a writer. That's... <laughs> There's... There's lots of disciplines that haven't been kept up. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's been nice to be busy. Um, like, keep... Please tell me you, you've forgotten to go for runs every day at least. Yeah, I don't run. Yeah, uh, yeah great. Cool, cool, cool. Thank <laughs> 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 <Hank> heavens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jesse, you just put out your debut novel. What's it like, A, putting out a debut novel and B, releasing a novel in COVID times? How has that been? Well, I feel like actually I've been rather fortunate in the timing because when it did come out, say around three weeks ago, it 
you know, at least in Sydney where I am, the restrictions were less than, say, Melbourne. And, you know, um, it was definitely not as severe as the very height of the situation, which was around March, April, May, I believe. So I've been very fortunate. Um, I still had events. Um, everything has been online. All my conversations with people have been through the digital space. But um, I am someone who's just optimistic, um, an eternal optimist. And I feel like I've been very lucky because I, I have a lot of friends overseas and they've, manage, they've managed to be able to participate in my virtual launches and interviews um, in that way. So that's just been very inclusive. And I have been very fortunate and um, very much like overwhelmed with gratitude with just the timing and what's happened. But um, I know that, you know, other people perhaps haven't had that same um, I guess, glowing um, reception in terms of just like, you know, how this time has affected their um, novels and publications. Yeah. I mean, even like looking you up, Jesse, I could find essentially you reading chapters of your book and discussing the book and heaps of that material is online and that'll be there for ages, which I feel, I was trying to think of when I can do that with any other book. And so now we're sort of in this world where it could be the next thing that we do for all book launches. It, it seems great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it really depends on who you're speaking to. Some people love it, some people hate it. You know, I myself personally don't like to be um, dominant in my digital footprint. Like, mm. I, I, like I'm not, a, I'm not active on Instagram or Twitter. Um, I would avoid it if I could, but I feel like um, during this situation, these new modern day. I guess, contexts, we have this mandatory need to be online. Um, and, you know, we as artists, we're, you know, agents of transformation. So we adapt. And I think that a lot of artists have been able to do that really well. Um, but, you know, I have to say, of course, um, it does come with a line of privilege. Like a lot of people don't have access to technology, Wi-Fi, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm speaking from a very privileged perspective, obviously. So you're saying like if the industry is like, uh, veering into this direction, you sort of need to balance that privilege with both how easy it is to access that versus, um, it, I mean, essentially accessibility seems to be the, the massive thing. I'd say that seemed to be a problem even before COVID really. Accessibility um, to arts? To, especially to like literature and book launches and things like that seemed to be like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I love my family members and friends live out West, like really out West, and they wouldn't have been able to come to my launch because all of my events, events would have been primarily within the inner West of Sydney or within Sydney. Um, and they can't, they have kids, they wouldn't be able to, you know, travel during the week to participate in those events. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say, I guess, accessibility, I mean, also just like physical distance as well. Mm. Uh and like also, I should also like pinpoint this. The discussions tended to be like quite chaotic, uh, mo mostly because you're relying a lot on like my social skills of balancing four people in different locations. So everyone, feel free to like like keep the discussion natural. I'll just find ways to sort of bounce between people. Like this awesome segue. Um, hi, Alice. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I j can I ask what like what what you're up to specifically in this time as well? Uh, yeah, so I'm doing, I, I'm doing a few things. Um, Brio is not publishing as much because, well, for a number of reasons, um, there, there are sort of the, the, the bigger picture reasons that, um, because we're a small press and because, uh, I have to do almost everything myself, I have to 
I have to both think that I personally can help make a book successful um, and I also have to have the energy to do all of those things uh, to try to help make a book find its readers. Um, and also we haven't been uh, receiving as many um, submissions that I've fallen in love with, I guess is the other thing. Hmm. So we haven't been publishing a huge number of books. Um, but I mean, a good thing I think about the Australian publishing industry, there's generally, um, if you've written a good book, you can find a home for it, um, is my opinion. Mm. There are, it, it has been a shame to see things like, I don't really have a comment on the lifted brow situation. I'm not really clear on what happened there. I haven't been involved with it, but I am disappointed that um, an independent publisher, it looks like they're not going to be doing much work anymore. But that said, it seems that basically the books that they were going to publish are going to other homes. Um, mm, mm. Something, so another publisher that it looks as though is not going to be around in the same way anymore is UWAP, um, University of Western Australia Press. And... That's a shame. Um, but we do have a really strong independent publishing scene in Australia. Curly was talking about um, Magabala. They just do brilliant work. I just got the um, Amberlynn Quaymalina poetry book, which is fabulous. Um, and they've been around for, you know, quite some time now, just um, doing exactly what they do best. So um, Magabala is great. UQP is great. Great. Um, Emily and I both used to work for Duramondo. They're, you know, still doing great independent publishing. So um, I don't know. And Jesse's published by Alan and Unwin, who is just roaring um, with success at the mm. moment. Mm. So I'm quite, um, I'm quite optimistic about publishing. And I guess I also think that if other people are doing things really well then there's no point in me doing exactly the same thing that they're doing well yeah of course <laughs> it's been a huge like six months as far as like just the ones that i'm like aware of or what's accessible and like like what anyone should be aiming for as a writer and like just like having said that it's just like i need to remember how many are also available still and who have still been publishing work like and also just not be sydney based essentially seems to be Vital. Oh, well, I was just going to say before when Jesse was talking about accessibility, this was the first time ever that the Miles Franklin announcement had been available. Mm. Um, I've been, I've been gate crashing uh, Miles Franklin parties since before I got invited and then I started getting inv invited eventually. Um, so I didn't have to crash them anymore. But the this idea that people can attend from anywhere uh, and Tara June Winch's speech was amazing and it was this really great call to action. So I felt as though, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity. Whereas last year, um, Melissa Lukashenko also gave an excellent speech and she did interviews, of course, afterwards, but it just, it means that the literary prize is a different kind of um, project, which I really like. And in terms of accessibility, so we published a short story collection um, by Elizabeth Tan, which came out in June. And the book has a story about ASMR, 
And so she wanted to do an ASMR style launch on YouTube. And she filmed it with her partner um, who actually did excellent production. And it's got a great sense of humour, but it's one of those things, last time I checked, you know, there were about 150 people who looked at it. She lives in Perth. There's no way there would be 150 people at her launch. Yeah. So um, so it, there are things like that which, um, which do help with accessibility. Um, and she put on um, captions as well. So for... Um, people who find captions useful, you know, there are, um, I feel as though this is much better in terms of accessibility. Uh, yeah. And if you'll forgive me, I don't mean to speak light of it, but I think we all know that authors are a pretty anxious bunch and um, not <laughs> physically having to be in the same place as other people who go to events is actually um, helpful for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I was even wondering, like, if once this is recorded and put out, the number of people who would have attended this event between, I mean, I know, obviously, the four of you are, like, uh, have your own networks and a big pool, obviously, because you're all badasses, but, like, and, like, they're like, oh, and the Tom guy is going to be there. Um, but, like, like, the accessibility of just this podcast alone of just authors talking writing is fantastic even like from the other episodes we've done of like hearing about like what's like happening next in performing arts or what's happening next in the visual arts sort of scene and things like that and we're just looking at the numbers going like these are better than actual uh, panel events um yeah. even yeah. though they're probably it's it's probably it's a completely different way to engage in um maybe emily if i turn to you like i've gotten most of my updates on the writing scene from you over the past six months regardless <laughs> and in that time like like Every time I speak to you, you are going to, you are like attending like virtual panels and like going, like watching conferences and keeping up with all that kind of stuff. Is there a, a, a cohesive way to get on board with all of these where these things are listed or is it about like engaging with the community more? Like how do you find these events yeah. first of all as a starting point? Wow. That's such a good question, Tom. And I don't know how equipped I am to answer it beyond. I mean, one thing I really like is the, the kind of intimacy of, like Facebook live events and Instagram live and things like that, where, you know, often the things I drop in on, I'll just be on my computer and it will pop up and it'll be like, great. I'm ready to like drop in for 15 minutes and see something cool and then get back to like whatever I have to do. Or, you know, I'm chopping up veggies at night and I can put on my friend and like hear them do their thing. And it feels amazing. And I love the like empathetic, way that you can hitting like the love heart button a million times yeah yeah, yeah. Like this so, as just well. like, scroll up it's just like yes <laughs> yeah it's so good like the different ways that you can kind of express like interest and affection and um and things like this um compared to you know the formality sometimes of of live events and the stress of those environments that i definitely have felt on both sides of you know, you know, as showing up as an audience and as like being the, the person speaking or whatever. So, yeah, but in terms, like, I don't know if, you, if anyone else here has seen something that's like more consolidated in terms of, hey, here's what's happening in terms of lit events, mm. a roundup or a newsletter. I don't, I'm not really across any one source that's like gathering that info. Yeah, I think the reason I, I just keep thinking about it is because like with, uh, I mean, there's the the classic idea of like the tortured writer, um, uh, like just by themselves. And I was just like, just as much as 
like advice to give writers right now is first of all obviously like write if you can um at whatever sort of sort of stage you're at and you know write more write better write whatever you sort of need and experiment and all that kind of stuff and but it's like if you're looking to engage in a community or in an industry it's like uh if you are a writer in this case it's like what what are the actual things that say someone who's writing or working on something what should they be doing right now in a very sort of practical sense like is it like, is it just right? Like, it just can't be just do more work. It's like the it's, the industry is obviously still thriving. So if you have any advice of what someone listening, any writer, this podcast is mostly a way to try to find ways that writers can engage in what's happening in the community right now and in the industry, whether it is just Illawarra-based, city-wide, right. state-based or more. Yeah. So if you have any advice on how okay. to, they can find that stuff, Emily, that would be awesome. If you're on social media, there are a lot of big groups that you can join. There's one for young Australian writers. There's different groups for like writers of colour and First Nations writers. There's groups for general arts, kind of big groups like that. And I think that's a big source of broad spectrum opportunities. Um, Yeah, how else do you know about what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I also I think if I do, I was just like, I was like, actually, you have no idea how I find out about most of these things. I think it's, it's yarning with people in that space, right? Like, it starts off that you end up going to a, a few events that you find from following some of those social media feeds or um, organizations, literary organizations who are in the space. And then you meet somebody there who's like, oh, there's this other thing on Tuesday, you should go. I, and I think that's how it works in the, the physical world. And somehow I think that's how it's working in the social world as well at the moment. Or that's how it's been for me during COVID, you know, friends flicking over book launches or following bookshops that I like on Instagram or, yeah, different sort of literary organisations and festivals have all gone digital this year, all the, all the literary festivals. So it's been really nice, yeah, being able to still reach audiences with all of I had I had so many festivals canned this year. Um, but it's been super nice to be able to still, yeah, engage with all those writers who I would have loved to go and sit and listen to, but mm. you know, just doing it from the comfort of my lounge room and chopping vegetables. That's uh, that's heaps better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, Curly, you also write with work with not only, I mean, sorry, the workshops you were talking about, like you were working with not only first-time writers, but also more experienced writers who were exploring language for the first time as well, seems to be it. Like, and how much is is it like pure, is it purely just based on writing or is it also about kind of like engaging in the scene obviously that is a first step going to a workshop is much more than not um, the workshops were tailored with um other arts organizations or with school communities mm-hmm. um so yeah in when with regard to students it was sort of their most for most of them it was their first published opportunity and then we had emerging writers and you know more experienced writers uh, and all of those poets who were commissioned were paired with elders and custodians in their community um, to be able to create and publish poems in language so um, that kind of generated its own community I suppose um, and you know had all of these other things fall around it like shaping protocols and editorial protocols and finding First Nations editors and shaping policies to engage First Nations editors safely mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a, a big undertaking, but a, a powerful one, I think, in that um, it set up a lot of routines and structures for how to move culturally safely and respectfully in space, in, in the literary space. And um, that, yeah, the communities that come from that uh, or the opportunities that come from that mean that, you know, anytime we're working with a First Nations writer around the world now through Red Room, there's still the opportunity to be able to do that safely. And I think when we're talking about access, making sure that cultural protocols are in place mean that access is uh, ingrained again in a different way. Yeah. 
once Black Lives Matter really sort of uh, flourished here in the social scene, just across my friends, a number of friends who were sharing book lists from people of color, suddenly it seemed, first of all, uh, like amazing. Um, it seemed like be like I couldn't find anyone who wasn't reading stuff from indigenous writers. The accessibility of that seemed like amazing. Like apart from reading like the widest book alive, I'm reading like slowly getting through Ulysses at the moment. Like I think I really um, have apart from that only been reading indigenous writers, um, mm. which I think also uh, Curly, you also recommended like Sand Talk, for instance, which uh, was like just I was like brilliant. Finally, like this is uh, like some sort of uh, like uh, just the sort of amount of content I've been producing, like and reading and engaging with. Um, yeah, that and- one's just mind bending, isn't it? I'm reading it again for the second time, but the yeah. way that uh, indigenous perspectives, so the way that we see the world and ingraining that instead of just um, outcomes. I think so much of the literary space, and I mean, we're working with producing books or podcasts or plays, you know, actual objects or things, mm. um, artifacts of some form. So it's nice to instead have something that's really shaping thinking um, rather than just a result or an outcome. And, yeah, yeah, totally. After reading, say, Bruce Pascoe or like, I know, like for the, all the research that I've been doing for like the show I'm working on at the moment, it's just like, oh, this is this other voice and this other sort of way of looking at the world. I, it got me worried, like thinking so much about like the role of books in, say, social justice movements. I tend to also, working in theatre, one of my big bursts for theatre is that it's like you can react so quickly and within six weeks the show can be up. Tend to be like, oh, books take longer to work on and like that's one of my, (laughs) which is such a weird thing to sort of worry about in comparison. But it's like those books are generally there forever, really. That's an interesting thing around creating content at the moment in the digital world too, because yeah, we're having book launches, but we're creating this content that does last forever. I know Jesse was speaking about that earlier. And that's one thing that working in cultural spaces is really curious around, you know, there's been this really quick response, people reaching out to community and saying, hey, because we can't get you in the classroom at this time, would you be able to record cultural content for us? And I'll say, well, that's fine, but what about how is ICIP being protected or cultural protocol mm, mm, being protected? Mm. And um, yeah, I think the the digital realm is trying to catch up to ancestral protocol and keep things safe um and it's interesting watching it unfold yeah totally especially like and some of the content uh even like refers to that like i read like charmaine pep talk green's book recently which it's basically like about like her process of documenting and like the role of documenting Mm -hmm. as well as relationship to family um (laughs) i've just read um anita heiss's book julia which um i don't know if you've i I just read it for the first time so i'm new to it but i hadn't actually given thought before to the way that copyright works contrary to cultural protocols for i mean just (laughs) generally um and and, and I think that there's been this long history of theft and appropriation. And so if you're recording things, that's one of the worries. But I mean, reading that, it, it made me both energised and really depressed uh, because in some ways I feel as though we've gone backwards. There used to be, I feel as though there used to be more editors of colour working in trade publishing than there are at the moment. Other people will probably know more about this than me, but that's my impression. And while in while there are many more books published by um, Aboriginal writers, almost always they're still working with white editors. And I was just at this conference where Grace Lucas Pennington was talking about her experience. And um, oh, you worked with her, didn't you? Oh, she is the most outstanding black editor in the country. So truly. Mm. 
oh, amazing to work with. Yeah. And see, this is the thing. She didn't go through, it's really hard to get a job in editing these days. And basically the only people who get jobs are people like me who um, come from middle-class families and get a postgraduate thing and blah, 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 do an internship. And she has quite a different path. And I feel like the only way that we get editors like her is just <laughs> by saying, okay, that other way didn't get us where we need to be. Let's do this other stuff instead. And it, and Ellen Van Nieven was on that panel as well. And, you know, the, the difficulty with someone like that is that they're in demand for so many different things simultaneously, as curly it seems like you are as well. And then it's hard to... I feel as though people end up being, you know, an advocate and editor and whatever else and a teacher and then trying to do creative projects on top of that. It's really difficult to find. My impression is it's difficult to find the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's this interesting movement happening in the literary world at the moment where white people are stepping down from their executive or lead roles in the industry. And it comes with the intention to make space for a black person to be able to do to have that role to sit in that role I've, I've been working alongside non-first nations colleagues and witnessing their discomfort of sitting in their current positions even though they yes they have that yes they're privileged and so am i but they have worked really hard to be in that position and they've developed a great wealth of content supporting first nations writers and activists and artists and i had to sit down with multiple directors of different companies and just say like please don't leave yet <laughs> don't step down from the big job without first having trained a black person into that role if that's what you want to do if that's the intention of this then check privilege let's provide opportunities for first nations creatives across multiple spaces and provide those mentorships and um work in allyship that way instead of just yeah stepping out of the way because you're worried you're taking up space like use the space you're taking up benefit community and empower self-determination i think that's far more important now than getting out of the way yeah i love my allies in literature in the literature world (laughs) yeah just on what kelly's saying i think one of the cool things about that first nations language project is that what you've been doing with that is like making a structural intervention. It's not just about like one, one time only opportunities, which often like, this is one of the kind of things where there's this perception, like, great. We've got like increasing representation of diversity opportunities here, there, but when it's like a one-off project, that's, that's good and that has benefit, but it doesn't make a structural change. Mm. And so what Curly's been working on in putting protocols in place, systems in place, developing an editorial strategy, and that's like an infrastructure there that now that first project can build and build and build now. And I think this is why the arts needs more, like this is why literature needs more investment and money, (laughs) I think, is to actually make those structural changes now. Yeah. And, yeah. and the structural changes, you know, we're talking about kind of decolonization of the arts, but decolonization also refers to dismantling any system of oppression that, you know, for any community that isn't the majority. And I think it would benefit our LGBTIQ mob. It would benefit BIPOC people everywhere. Anybody who's underrepresented for us to really look at the current Uh, literary sphere and say hey what doesn't work how do we make it better and I think arts organizations are really stepping in up to the plate and are making those changes and it's a cool time but publishing companies aren't yet 
Yeah, that, yeah. Don't, I'm calling them into action. Don't worry. We're going to get there. <laughs> this, is, this is something that really um, I feel as though people who maybe aren't in the industry would be a little bit surprised to find out that despite it being 2020, the vast majority of people in executive roles in trade publishing companies are men. And almost all staff at the lower levels are women uh, and generally the jobs aren't very well paid. And this is another thing which is worse than it used to be. It used to be the case that both Random and Penguin had female CEOs and it just, there aren't, it's not just that there aren't really women in these positions. It's also that any women that have children are very rarely in any kinds of executive positions. So the, um, it feels as though in some ways publishing for all its progressive politics and and despite the fact that it's an industry filled with left-wing um, people who may from time to time seem to be woke, it's it's really that we need to, um, we need to change the whole thing. And it keeps circling through my head. They say it's easy to, easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. The only thing that's making me a little bit hopeful about change is that because there has been this really strong movement in the market for purchasing books by people of colour, by trans writers, by, you know, writers with different perspectives, I feel as though the trade publishers would also recognise that you, maybe this is wishful thinking, but that in order to produce those projects in the future, you can't just have the same staff that you've always had. Mm. But there are so many structural problems associated with that, like low pay. So <laughs> we've got a lot of What's work to about? do. I don't, I don't, I've never heard anything. As a man, I haven't really discussed. It's in, <laughs> that's, sorry, sorry, that's very... <laughs> You're not old enough yet to make those jokes, Tom. No, I know. Um, <laughs> we're joking in the chat box about we really needed Thelma Plum's uh, work books right there. <laughs> yeah, I'll just see if I can get clearance to have it and it will just like play. It'll be awesome. On the flip side of this, like Jesse, so I've been, I've also like just like, first of all, I ordered your book in and it hasn't arrived yet. So I'm frustrated at that, let alone. So I was like, in order to prepare for today, I've actually read every possible review I could find of your work of A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. And they've all been very, they all very clearly talk about like uh, how you're changing discussions about like sex and desire and from a female perspective. And then one review just casually mentioned that like the character was daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, that's uh, interesting that these things haven't really focused on race very much at all. And I looked at an old interview with you where you were like, I'm trying to just change discussion about race and sex. Like you were very clearly trying to make it about race or like at least in that interview discuss that. And I found it interesting that none of the reviews really mentioned that. Like, is that systematic or is that just the way that the book reads? Actually, or- that's so interesting that you... You, you pointed that out, Tom. I think maybe you're the first person to have vocalised that specific, I suppose, like slant that people have tended to take. And I think just like hearing that now, I'm just thinking, and this is just me thinking aloud, you know, it's a working hypothesis. Hmm. But maybe it's just, for me, perhaps it's just the fact that the people who do read it, um, that has been the most... That is perhaps for for the readers more universal. They were managed. They managed to latch onto the idea of sex because you know, if sex, we're all affected by it. Whereas you know, only some part of the population are, are affected by race, right? 
racial marginalization, I mean. So for me, that says that as a country, as a cultural landscape, um, there is a more pertinent hunger for a conversation around sex and intimacy. And perhaps people are prioritizing that over the fact of the racial elements of that book. I mean, it's not completely been ignored. There's no, like, mm. there, there have been people who have talked about how it's a, like, it's very, it's a very cutting, you know, when you read the book, I don't know what you'll think about it, but people have said it's quite lacerating in the way that I attack the classical music industry. Um, and that was completely intentional. Like I really wanted to be like very, very brutal in my criticism of that space. There are a lot of problems with that space, but yeah, it's such an interesting point that you make about that. The amount of emphasis that people have put on you as like, ah, oh, st- like I'm a, a, I'm a teacher and um, I studied classical music for I think it's 15 years was the last one I sort of read or whatever. It's I, I didn't I just didn't know how much that plays into the book, but that sounds first of all a right up my alley then, um, and also I don't know educational about all this content at the same time. That sounds great. I'm so it's almost like now I'm just really annoyed that I haven't got it. Do <laughs> um, <laughs> so you study music as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, and like uh, even seeing like what's happened over classical music in over the past, I don't know, let's say like five years about the the classical music scene's attempt to get young people to attend uh, concerts is like we'll do one song by Radiohead, but the rest of it is essentially <laughs> uh, essentially all I don't know Austrian composers. Essentially, yeah. Like, well, you know oh, how they're um, really not branching out of that sort yeah. of space much at all. Well, like at the end of the day, orchestras uh, are a business, just like publishing houses are a business, right? Mm. And, literary spaces always go on and on and on about um, the canon, right? But there's also a canon in the classical music industry. There's a canon in every industry, right? And the canon is still very much um, centred on the same people who have been revered for centuries. Mm. It's like even more enculturated than I'd say in literature spaces. Like classical music doesn't seem to be asked to do the work that other spaces in, Eng- in art forms like theatre dance, literature, music, you know, all of those spaces are very much spaces where people are asked to comment on the, and, and adapt to the, um, to the contemporary situations. But like classical music seems to be like in its own bubble. Yeah. And I hate that. I hate that. It's just, it's I, like, I'm, I'm certain it's about like the cost is like the, like the, whatever is achievable as an audience member, like it, to see a, like, like a concert alone is like, uh, like a hundred bucks like exactly just, just, just to attend I know. the opera house precisely like, yeah precisely theater too like i can't afford sydney theater company tickets oh, anymore only Jesus. go if it's free only go when it's free. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> it's a nice thing about books so sometimes people complain about books in australia being expensive because they are a little bit more expensive than some other english-speaking countries and they're a lot more expensive than uh, countries like india and china but they're still cheap compared with going to the movies and they're still cheap with mm. other kinds of art forms uh, and you can go down to your local library if you want to get a book and they'll order it for you or my favorite thing at the moment is the state library of new south wales or wherever your state library is you can borrow books and sit in your bedroom and they will put it onto whatever thing that you have i mean we were talking about technology being a kind of privilege but i feel as though many many people in australia have some kind of internet access so if you have those things you can you can get books from your local library for free um and i feel as though there is if i can say this without 
uh, <laughs> without bringing my undoing, I like that book prices are as high as they are because um, <laughs> if they were any lower, then um, well, for one thing, people, yeah, <laughs> well, people wouldn't give them as presents if they were too cheap. This is this is something that happens in other markets when books are too cheap; they're not seen as um, something that's special enough to be a present. Yeah, but also, yeah. so long as we um, we want to try and make any semblance of a living out of selling books um then we we need to have the prices um, at around this level when you were talking about you know ways for people to find um access to events or other individuals or communities or whatever physical books do have lots of information in them if you know where to look so for instance on the acknowledgements page most books these days have acknowledgements pages and so you can see who that person's publisher was their agent yeah often their circle of friends depending on the book um so you get lots of information from that and also on the imprint page it'll have the publisher's uh website and so if you read a book that you like and or you think has some kind of connection with something that you're working on then you can go to that publisher's websites and website and most publishers in australia accept unsolicited submissions so it's very different from the us or the uk where you you need an agent in order to have your work read by a publisher in australia you really can get your work read by somebody who works for a publishing company so books are your key Um, that's first of all. I'm really glad that this uh, conversation has veered around to mostly like, like I, I just don't feel like I talk about industry stuff in literature very often at all. Like most things are about process and art stuff. So like this feels very, yeah. I don't know. It just feels nice. I don't know. Is that a weird thing to say? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's important to have these conversations, and so many people are like desperate to know the you know the logistics of getting your work out there, right? And maybe maybe people have this sense that it's unsavory to talk about it. I don't know, but um, but it's definitely something that I was like completely lost about. Like my um, so what Alice said about um, the pathway to publication in Australia completely true. Like I had my first manuscript read by someone in Pe- uh, Penguin um, three years ago, and she took it to acquisitions. It wasn't successful, but like I wasn't represented by an agent at that, at that point. But um, but I had the chance to be published by them, so that was like quite shocking to me that the levels are not as like kind of obscure or inaccessible as say like I don't know. I'm just thinking if I ever wanted to make a film, I would have even I would have no idea where to start. And yeah. obviously, there are more people collaborations involved in all that. Yeah, totally. Um, well, then maybe. Um... Uh, the last last article that I read about what writers should do in COVID um, time, pretty much all of them were about branching out of what you think writing should be. And I, I kept thinking about this about in terms of being like an experimental writer or like a poet or uh, people who essentially aren't writing for books or... I just found right. that very strange advice. It was to like, hey, don't think inside the media. Um, and I was just wondering like this, like the role of experimental writing now and like what kind of roles are out there? I mean, maybe I could turn to you, Emily, like you're uh, like a PhD candidate as writing for experimental stuff. Well, I mean, maybe I can just ask about the role of experimental writing right now or like poetry for the page. Well, I mean, I can't stop thinking about what Alice said earlier about Elizabeth Tan doing an ASMR performance. For yeah, her no, definitely looking that up. Like, I can't wait to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is amazing. I think if you are a performative person, then the digital space offers so much in, in that regard. Or like, 
a sick person on TikTok or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, in terms of experimental writing, when I think about that like term, experimental writing, I guess what it points to is the, the fact that words are a medium like other art forms. And so in many senses, publishing is a very narrow business. You go into a bookshop, we know what a fiction book is, we know what a non-fiction book is, things are categorised and there's formulas and things like this. But also, you know, where the, where the change happens is when if you kind of get out of that space and you're, it's, there's a really important other side to it, which is like the work of, um, of poets in pushing language to do new kinds of things that over time filters back into the more mainstream writing that we see on the shelves. That's yeah. a very rambling response. Mm. No, that, I mean, I, I guess this also, it points as a weird, there's a weird correlation here of like experimental writing pushing the mainstream. Also kind of, there is some allegory there between that and systematic change in a <laughs> thing, isn't there? Like, obviously it's kind of up to the individual and individual uh, publishers and editors to be the sign of change in both those kind of spheres, surely. Um, Thinking about something in terms of like how you be a writer or something like that, you know, for me, it's like it really starts with like having like a really safe and a really free place on the page where you can just kind of experiment in the loosest possible way where like, you know, you give yourself permission to like see where things take you. Creating that space for yourself is like so vital, I think, if you're a writer. And one of the problems at the minute, I think, is that you know, we're all at home reading the same three news websites and, you know, you can easily fall into like a very closed system of, you know, bubble, I suppose, of where everyone's reading the same things. And to produce like interesting writing, you have to, you have to read out against that grain, I suppose, Mm. or like much more widely than that. I just feel like reading is the engine of of writing. Absolutely. Are you suggesting that we make, that the five of us make an experimental news outlet, experimentally (laughs) written, that breaks form, construction, and uh, sentence structure at the same time? (laughs) This language, I like honestly. That's a. It's not a bad idea. At least I would read it at least once. I guess more than experimental <laughs> writing, I'm thinking about like yes. <laughs> right. I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking more about like this current moment we're in or whatever is a good time to think reflect on your writing process, mm. and that reading experimentally is important <laughs> as mm. well. Yeah. When you say widely, Emily, do you mean ostensibly like reading from a diverse range of perspectives? Is that what you mean? Outside of the mainstream cultural norm, is that what you mean? Yeah, I think um, I definitely mean that. And this, you know, read outside of this time period or read, read outside of this like Western kind of um, vantage point that, that we're in. Like, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's something I've always w- tried to do very aggressively. Yeah. Because it's so yeah. easy to fall into the trap of reading what everyone else is reading. And when you're surrounded by a culture and this whole history of this country, you know, um, embedded in this idea of, you know, um, of Anglo, very Anglo-centric idea of, you know, 
um, who, who are the valuable contributors to what it means to be a human? Who are the adjudicators? Who tells you what's worthy, what's not worthy? They've always been a very narrow cohort of society. Um, and I've never found when I like every time, every single time I pick up a classic work of work of literature, like Hemingway, um, Philip Roth, you know, any of those dudes, um, they have always felt deeply, deeply alienating to me. And I always thought, I always thought there was something wrong with me. I always thought there was some unintelligible part of my essence, my personhood, because everyone raves about them. So, you know, Ulysses must be, um, James Joyce, he must be a genius. And if I don't get James Joyce, I must be the dumb idiot, you know, in the room. And he's definitely the way it's pitched, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, um, David Foster Wallace, you know, I felt, I spent years feeling like an idiot and like feeling like a failure because I didn't understand infinite Jess. I don't want another generation of young people growing up thinking that it just because those men and their literature and their perspectives don't, don't sit well with you, that there's something wrong with you. Um, so I've been actively trying to not read um, the so-called canon and actually just like being very aggressively pursuing my own idea of what my own canon is and then promoting that for other people. So like, especially young readers, when they say, well, who should I read? Mm. I always think like, never go to listicles, you know, never go to those publications where they produce the same names. Unless it's written by someone black or person of color. Then yeah. Disabled people, trans people, fat people, all those marginalized people have grown up on, on the outside. And what, what happens when you're someone who has um, grown up on the outside is you see things that all those people in the center don't see and you grow up with uh, less blind spots. You're more observant. You're more humane and compassionate. All those people, like most of my friends are queer um, just like, and, and not like the standard heterosexual norm, I'd say, because they're so much more kinder. Like I've actually find that a lot of heterosexual people are just so boring because they don't see a lot of stuff that we people on the margins see, you know, and it just kind of makes me angry. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. <laughs> oh, that was great. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly why I liaise the panels. I'm not actually on the panels. I'm just like, yeah, I'll ask the questions and you can educate me. This is great. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about what's going to be in the show notes for this in particular. And like you saying, like building a new canon, is it possible that like, I could ask, like, you know, I'm not going to put you on the spot now, but, like, to, to send through, like, books that you actually do end up recommending people to break that classic canon, just so that anyone listening can have access to those books of what they kind of, of what, um, like, the four of you recommend of just, like, this is important and isn't discussed nearly enough. If you any of you put Infinite Jest on there, I might just edit it out, but... Um, <laughs> Anything that you want, if, like we can link to whatever we want, just so that people listening can just have be like, oh great, I just want to break outside, you know, the classic listicle structure it would be great. Um, so okay, cool. So we've got an experimental news broadcast system. We've got inventing a new canon. This all seems very achievable uh, and very easy, really. How do we infiltrate like that as far as like education in general, universities and things like that? I'm I've infiltrated a university recently Ooh, in that um, I'm teaching <laughs> um, editing at UTS at the moment, and one of the things about editing is, as I mentioned in Australia, it's just it's the widest thing you ever did see, <laughs> because in order to become an editor, it's people who like my my parents um. Well, my my dad in particular didn't come from a wealthy family. He was the first person in 
his family to go to university. But they sent me to private school and they said, go to university and study whatever you want. All that matters is that you go to university and um, enjoy yourself and, you know, all of those kind of follow your heart type rubbish. And so I read a huge amount and, um, and I had a, um, a year off after uni, I went, worked in France and I did an internship at a literary agency. I mean, it smacks of every kind of privilege. Uh, <laughs> and then I've been publishing ever since then. And I was always prepared to take jobs with low pay because I was more interested in doing something that I felt was valuable um, rather than being worried about whether or not I'd have a roof over my head because I have a, um, a family support network system. So we have to change um, the way that people can access publishing, but it's also the way that people think about editing. So I'm currently working on a PhD about editing and publishing history in Australia. And um, I'm just getting started on the second half of it, which is nonfiction. And it's going to be looking at Ruby Langford, Ginnaby, Sally Morgan, and maybe Helen Garner. We'll see. It depends on archive access. But there has been a bit of work in Australia about white editors intervening in the work of Aboriginal people. But it's not just in the work of Aboriginal people, it's also in the work of non-Aboriginal people. Uh, so, for instance, in Thea Astley's book, Multiple Effects of Rain Shadow, she used the word Murray and her editor changed it to black. Mm. So there was this characterization specifically of Aboriginal people from a particular part of the country and using the word in Aboriginal English, which was then converted into the, the white word, I suppose. Mm. And it used to be the case that there was a residential editorial publishing program that specifically had sessions on um, not interfering with Aboriginal English. And as far as I know, Emily, you can correct me, but I don't think that that's happening right now. So we, we, can, we can take action. I mean... Obviously, I'm the white person teaching this course, so it's of limited benefit <laughs> to my students. Um, but I'm able to recommend a lot of really, really good resources. I've been reading a lot of Janine Leanne and Amber and Kwe Molina. They're, you know, trying to make it so that it's not just strong and white elements of style mm. and... Um, the story of Beatrice Davis, who, you know, was a trailblazer and did amazing work in Australia uh, as an editor. And there's nobody else who's quite been like her. But it's also, like Jesse was saying, we need to change the things that we're reading. Mm. I mean, in my case, it was even worse than um, I never read Australian literature. I read one Australian book doing undergrad English and then honours. What was it? Uh, in it was uh, The Orchard by Drusilla Majeska. Um, the whole rest of the time I didn't read a single Australian book, let alone a book um, by an Aboriginal writer or a um, Torres Strait Islander writer. I didn't, it just, <laughs> it just, didn't, just didn't even come, come up. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, I mean, similarly, I think I only read Cloud Street. Yeah, so I think that's like, <laughs> that's just my education. It's just like, oh, cool, that's what Australian writing is and that's all I... <laughs> Essentially, got told. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting not, into music instead. 
I've, I've just finished the judging the prime minister's literary awards in the children and YA category. Mm. Um, and we've had so many meaty discussions mm. about um, what constitutes literary in our nation and um, about cultural protocols, cultural appropriation, telling own stories um, and what that looks like for YA and children's. Mm. And um, we have a wealth of incredible BIPOC writers, queer writers, um, yeah, a diverse range of writers moving through the literary sphere in the world. And um, I, I'm excited to see the ways that, you know, our large literary awards start to shape up um, what they what they condone as literary and how those awards are judged. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing more panel diversity in, in the judging of those awards and uh, it's exciting to see things change. And um, as a Black writer, I'm excited to be judged against those kinds of um, parameters instead of being judged against, yeah, what what is white and what is privileged and what is the majority. I could maybe ask as a final thought, do you have a goal or a vision of like what you think the inevitable next step as far as the industry should be or any ways you'd like it to grow or change that we haven't already discussed? Is that too much of an intense question to finish? (laughs) It sounds very big, obviously. One of the unfortunate things about um, writing and publishing is that it's seen as the cheapest of all art forms. Mm. And in some ways it is in the sense that it is possible for people to do it by themselves in their bedrooms. Um, And also since everybody grows up doing some version of, um, if you go to school, then you do some version of writing. So um, people say to each other, oh, well, everybody's got a book in them. That's actually categorically not true. But um, just just for the record. They generally um, don't have one, so it's good, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Writing takes time uh, and it's connected both to time and physical space and so it does still need money Um, and you know for instance literary journals um, are fighting over these tiny tiny scraps of funding Um, and then it means that people contributing to literary journals put in a huge amount of work and get hardly anything the editors of literary journals tend to come from very privileged positions because the wages are so low so the only people who can afford to do those jobs are you know the people so there is one really basic thing in that we need a huge injection of money. I don't see this happening anytime soon with either either party in government, but we need a huge injection of money to say that this is valuable, not just in terms of potential commercial outcomes. Um, and I sometimes wonder whether the fact that the industry is seen seen as kind of pre- recession proof uh, and that compared with other book markets around the world, we're surviving relatively well. So some people think that we don't really need that kind of support. Um, But writers do. I mean, they can't. Um, Jesse and, well, Keely and Emily, you're, you're all writers. You know that you can't just, you can't experiment. You can't find new ideas. You can't spend time reading widely and thoughtfully uh, unless you have the money to do it. So my bottom line is we need money. (laughs) I think just before we end, I wanted to mention the fact that um, during this whole publication process I've had with Alan and Unwin, at every single point in my journey, I suppose, so to speak, um, I have been engaged with the same type of person. They've always been a woman 
always been white, always been heterosexual and always been like, like Alice mentioned, went to a private school. I'm just like, so I'm so like astonished by that, that that sort of narrow type of person and that, that at every single level, um, during my publication, like the, the right from the receptionist to my publisher, um, has been that kind of person. And I'm not saying that to criticize the industry. Um, I guess I'm just saying that it's an interesting observation. And I've been thinking a lot about how, like I, I think often about why I don't see more Asian women or Asian men in that space. And I think um, perhaps, like I completely agree with Alice, we need more money. But I also question my own cultural background like my parents never encouraged my writing um like they, they my parents were very and a lot of asian immigrant um families we don't go to university to pursue our dreams or our passions we go to university in order to get a job in order to get um, a stable career um, it's always about sustaining economic uh, stability always like in asian culture um to even think about pursuing one's individual dream is seen as very deeply selfish. Like my parents grew up in a very collectivist society. And I feel like in Asia, in China, it's still very much that, that attitude is prevalent. And so like, if we have continued to have immigrant and immigrant families who sustain that sort of way of thinking, I don't see, I don't see how we could get like, I'm just speaking here of Asians um, I don't see how we can get more Asian people into this industry, which is like Alice said, like ridiculously low paid, um, where one's career is not economically, um, guaranteed, you know? Um, and I don't know how to overcome that. I honestly don't like it's, it's a whole cultural shift and it's a shift that has to happen in another country. It's away from Australia. So mm. I'm just like, I think you keep writing books, Jess. Right? Like, and, you know, I see that a lot in the classroom. I was a kid who I grew up taught at a lesser pace than my peers because my teacher had this kind of racial bias and didn't believe that I'd be smart enough to be able to keep up with the content. Um, and so I, I didn't read confidently or write or feel proud to do those things. Um, and now when I teach non, you know, some First Nations children, I'll always have one come up to me and be like, because I see you and you're a writer, I believe I can be that too. Mm. Um, yeah. Because I see yeah. you and you're a woman who's in publishing, I believe I can be that too. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. And normally at the end, I have some sort of bookendy sign-off um, as if we're kind of processing what just happened. But at least what's become more and more obvious is that we get somewhere without me having to wrap it up like a Jerry Springer finale. And I know that this still sounds like one, but I, I'm just trying to point out that I'm not saying something. Ugh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just finally learning to listen. That was Creative Dialogues, a Wollongong City Council project created and curated by the Cultural Development Team. So a massive thanks to Annie Clapton and Janine Primer. Check the show notes as we'll link to where you can keep up to date with Jesse, Curly, Alice and Emily. We'll also make sure their ideas for a new literary canon are listed somewhere uh, in the show notes and on the Wollongong City Council page. 
My name is Tom Hogan. The next episode is our final one for this series before we inevitably start up again next year. So stay tuned. All right, then. That sounds great. Well, then, Curly, you can go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Can't wait. Can't wait to read your book. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Young soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, Bye, Curly. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, yeah, thanks, guys. That was really fun. Thank, <gasps> Thank you. you. Yeah, so good. Bye. Bye. Bye.